Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Over the Bridge podcast. Um, this is Patrick. Uh, happy New Year. Um, I think this is our first episode of the New Year, so um, I hope everybody is doing well. Um, it's a bit of a mad time at the moment, but um, yeah, I hope everybody's keeping as well as they can be. Um, I'm joined today uh, by uh, Kweku, if you just want to like, give a shout out to everybody. Just say hello. Yo, what's going on everyone? Happy New Year uh like patrick said mad mad do you know what i think like every episode we've done since like march has been yeah it's a mad time <laughs> like it's just a continuation of the same i was like oh yeah magically in 2021 everything yeah. be, you know all good again this but, week on the coronavirus yeah do you know yeah, what i mean nice it it do you know what this at the beginning of this year like it didn't even feel like the new year because um you know, like normally with a new year, there's like a fresh start and, but this just felt like, like added time, like extra time in a football match. Like it's just, mm. it's, there's no kind of end in sight. Do you know what I mean? It didn't feel, it was, yeah, it was a weird one. But um, anyway, we're here and um, thankfully, um, yeah, we're doing okay. Um, yeah, and I'm really happy to, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was just going to say that, um yeah, I'm really happy to have two um, amazing guests with us um, in the virtual studio this week. Um, and I feel like it's a bit, we, we, we've done like quite a lot on like the arts recently. So this is like a nice continuation. Um, but yeah, um, I'm joined by um, Roy Alexander-Weiss, um, Artistic Director um, of the Royal Exchange in Manchester. Um, and Ayas Karayuki, um, who is... Um, um, a stage technician um, and has done work for the National Theatre among many others um, and it's just such a pleasure to have both of you on this morning um, but you know what I'd let you guys introduce yourselves um, a bit better than I've done but um, yeah guys thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Oh god I find this all I find this so hard all the time um so I am, yeah, so, so as Patrick said, I'm, the, uh, I'm one of two joint artistic directors actually at the Royal Exchange Theatre um, with another brilliant colleague called Bryony Shanahan um, and with um, our chief executive, Steve Freeman, we're joint chief execs as well. Um, but prior to that, um, I've been a freelancer in theatre as a director, um, a writer, a facilitator, um, even at one point was an actor. Um, uh, yeah, and I guess some of the notable things that people might recognize, um, I directed a play called Nine Night at the National Theatre, um, which also transferred to the West End, um, a play called Master Harold and the Boys, also at the National Theatre, and Katori Hall's The Mountaintop about the last days of Martin Luther King's life at the Young Vic. Um, I'm also on the board of Uproot Productions and Open Door, um, and have been the tutor for Open Door as well. Um, wow, it's a lot of hats, man. <laughs> Too many. We're trying to take some. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's amazing. Uh, and Iris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm I'm a stage technician slash carpenter. I'm freelance, so I move around uh, quite a lot. Um, I also like uh, also worked at like the Young Vic, the National Theatre. I started out at the Royal Court, um, 
the West End uh, and I did like work for a set building company. So just done a few TV uh, stuff as well. But yeah, just, you know, freelance, just like Roy. But <laughs> Yeah, and, and you guys have, I was, I was just going to say you guys have worked together as well or like I know you guys obviously know each other have you actually like worked together on, on stuff or yeah, yeah. go on ice <laughs> but, um we were both uh trainees at the Royal Court uh I was technical trainee and Roy you were director trainee I think yeah trainee director yeah. trainee director sorry um and I was finishing just as Roy was starting and the first production uh, that we did together was uh, Liberian Girl. If, I don't know if you remember that, yeah. but um, I've worked on like uh, Mountain Top, uh, Nine Night, uh, Master Harrod, like basically like anything, <laughs> just, on, just on the uh, technical side that Roy has done. I like the, you know, the really the bigger production sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that's like the first production I ever worked on was probably one of my top 10 shows over yeah. like favorites that I've ever worked on was Liberian Girl and that was I think I was the deputy carpenter on that yeah that was that was my first ever proper job uh after finishing my train trainee scheme wow okay cool cool um because yeah um obviously like stage, te stage technician that to me is like a really like obvious role um you know backstage um in a play production but like I've never really sort of like considered like carpentry um but it, I mean it seems like quite obvious like for building sets um so I guess like I just wanted to ask like Iris like how did you how did you get into that was it like sort, sort of through a love of carpentry at first or like you know did you always want to be a stick to technician and then kind of like move over to like learning carpentry as well how did it kind of come about um I so the long story of it is like um I wanted to I always knew I wanted to work backstage uh but I thought it'd be more like tv and theater um mm -hmm. and uh like GCSEs came around I like flopped in that and you know first generation immigrant sort of family like that's you know the worst you could probably like probably do and then you know tell your family that you want to work backstage and they're like what you know the main roles <laughs> are like doctor engineer you know those yeah. roles um but <laughs> because i did so badly at school um my parents were like they kind of stepped back and I, was, I enrolled myself into college, did a, a technical uh, theatre course for two years, um, went, got a trainee scheme at the Royal Court and I wanted to do lighting and that's actually what my final like part like of the trainee scheme was. But then I started working backstage and getting involved in that. Um, and one of the companies that uh, built the sets for the Royal Court was uh, a company called Scott Fleury and they came in I didn't even know if I thought that was just one person came mm. like asked them if I could do a work experience in their workshop so um during the day I'd like do uh like I'd go and work in their workshop during work experience and then in the evening I would go and do like um crewing on shows and I just did that for a while and eventually 
one of the guys who owns the company was like, you know, from now on, we're just going to start paying you. And, you know, oh. that's how I got into it. Nice, nice. And like coming up, because um, I guess this is a kind of conversation that's sort of a theme that's like popped up in a lot of the conversations that we've had about the arts. Um, like, What was it like as a sort of a, um, a young black person from like an immigrant family as well um in that environment um did you see many other black faces um what was like sort of what was it like in terms of like access as well um I grew up in a small town called Peterborough just you know an hour away from London and um like there was probably about five black families in the whole town predominantly white Mm. right wing sort of um leaning town and there was no like arts no nothing um on my college course there was only two of us in my year and about seven of us in total first and second year so we weren't open to those sort of opportunities um I just watched things on YouTube and kind of that's that was my experience and then um Mm. like you know trying to sell it to my family they just didn't understand, but luckily, you know, they, uh, I told my dad if, you know, the year in London didn't work out, I'd go back to school and go to uni, yeah. but luckily it worked out. I landed on, on my feet. Um, but yeah, like I, I, until I moved to London, I hadn't, I actually, I, we went on a trip to, uh, with our college to watch Ghosts, the musical. Okay. But apart, apart from that, I'd never really stepped into a proper theatre. Um, I remember I went on my like uh, interview for my trainee course and they were like, what theatre shows have you watched? And I was like, um, just this one. And they were like, what's your favourite production? And I was like, I, I've only ever seen one. I think I was <laughs> Jack and the Beanstalk uh, as a panto when I was yeah. you know, maybe 10. But apart from that, I would, you know, everything I'd seen is just on the internet, really. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because, I, yeah, I was going to ask, like, was there, like, you know, that sort of, like, light switch moment where you uh, went to th- see a production and you were like, yeah, wow, this is, like, what I want to get involved in. Um, but, yeah, I guess that one was your sort of first and favourite and sort of light switch moment as well. Um, Roy, what about yourself? Like, because... Um, yeah, I, I, I think I gather you're from London, right? Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So um, was it, I guess in terms of like sort of seeing black faces in London, like that's a slightly different thing to to growing up outside of London. But nonetheless, it's still like you know, a real issue in terms of um, kind of feeling comfortable in certain artistic spaces as um, a young black boy as well. Because um, um, I'm speaking from sort of my perspective of having like played classical music when I was younger. Um, and I was very much like the only person, the only black person or one of like two, maybe three black people in the orchestra and mm-hmm. playing at these kind of um, spaces and just kind of feeling kind of like a, maybe not quite an imposter, but like a guest, a little bit of a sort of a guest, like it doesn't really feel like your space, but yeah. Yeah, I'm keen to hear you. Like, what was your kind of experience coming up, and and what kind of inspired you to getting into um, direction? Um, yeah, it's a it's a really 
mad story because it it was all by chance really um and I feel like there's there's like one action really that I've taken in my life that has led me to here um so yeah I came from an immigrant family as well um my parents are Ghanaian and Jamaican um and um yeah I, I mean like when I was a kid I was already being told that I was going to be a lawyer <laughs> yeah, so, you know, yeah. I did stuff like do law a level and I didn't even go to the exam because I just knew it wasn't for me which was really bad you didn't go to the exam you didn't turn up I didn't. I, I I just knew wow. it wasn't for me I knew it wasn't right I I don't know yeah was, yeah I I don't know I, f- I found that maybe now in my 30s actually I've only just accepted the fact that like I maybe don't do things like if I don't think I'm going to be good at them, like I just don't invest. It's really bad actually. But um, uh, but I, I like when I am in, I am all in. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I guess <laughs> but, it saves a lot of time. You know, you know, you know what you like and you know what you don't like. You know what you're good at. You know you're not good at. So yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. It's a lot of conviction. But yeah, so I um, went to a school called Archbishop Tennyson's in Oval. Um, I lived in the Brixton Oval area. Mm. Uh, I was in the cadet band as well, playing instruments. Music was my thing. Okay. Like music has really been in my family, but more because of the connection to church. Um, uh, and okay. um, it's weird because like there are so many artists in my family, but they would never call themselves artists. I have an uncle that runs a media company and has like filmed weddings and funerals since I can remember. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, like one of my grand's aunts plays the organ, but again, she'll only ever play it in church. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, my grandma's a seamstress, so that's like a hugely creative role. And the baker mm. as well, hugely creative. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of creativity in my family, but like there isn't, like, I feel like <laughs> I'm like one of the first people to go like, I am an artist. Mm, that's, mm. that's my bread and butter. Um, yeah. Now, that made my family really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I, yeah, so I went to Archbishop Tennyson's and literally I left school one day um, and I was walking home and I needed to use the toilet and I walked into this building on the same road and it mm. happened to be a theatre, Oval House Theatre, but it didn't look like a theatre at all. It was just like mm. blue kind of building on, on the bend um, opposite okay. the cricket ground. Um, and I used the bathroom, came out, and they were, like, giving me flyers for stuff. And to be honest, it was because they had, like, a pool table and a table tennis table. <laughs> and so I just, like, went back to school the next day and told <laughs> them. And, and, that, and that became, like, our coach. Like, we just went there and played games. But then I enrolled on the summer school. Yeah. Um, and they were doing music, and I really got into it then. And then I joined the youth theatre. And... I guess like, like I had never been to the theatre, mm. like other than that one. And it, my, in my naivety, I was like, "That's it's not really a theatre though, because it doesn't look like a theatre. It doesn't have like long velvet, red velvet curtains, and <laughs> there's no one ringing bells and all of that stuff." Um, yeah. I'd never been yeah. to like you know a theatre in the West End or anything like that before then. <laughs> um, but I guess my light bulb moments were. Um, like I was, I, I had like a, quite a big family bereavement when I was 16. Um, 
my mum passed away like really suddenly and um I just didn't want to be in my house and yeah. I went into the theatre on the Saturday I remember um and I just remember feeling like this is where I'm supposed to be mm. and then shortly after that I got asked to do this play called Chat Room by a writer called Ender Walsh and I'd never really acted like really my acting debut was about a year before that and I played an emperor in a play called More Light but I <laughs> I die in like the first two minutes of the play <laughs> and then literally I laid there on stage for about an hour and a half <laughs> got like China bu Chinese bumps in my hair and everything. I got my hair done. I got a shape up. I thought I was... <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I died in the first two minutes and just laid there. Um, and I got asked to play the lead character. And I got asked by this man called Nikolai Labari, who um, was the head of UFARTS and he was the director there. He was a black man from Trinidad. Um, and I think he could really see me. Like he, he mm. really saw me. He knew what I was going through. Yeah. He knew that like the theater had become a safe space for me, mm. but he also could see that maybe I had something. Um, and he encouraged me to do this play. And I was just like, okay, cause you know, the arrogance of youth makes you think you can do everything. Mm. And um, so I, <laughs> I started doing this play and then realized that like so much of what I was experiencing in my personal life with grief and stuff was, was like being mirrored in this character. And I was like, whoa, 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 I need to mm. like step back from this. And he just kept encouraging me through the process. Mm. And there was just something about like performing the last lines of the play every night for two weeks mm. at the age of 16 on stage and being applauded and, and feeling like I was purging elements of like, yeah. the like trauma that I was experiencing. Yeah, and that yeah. was the moment when I think I realized how powerful stories are. Yeah. Um, and then I I went off to, uh, I did like a gap year. Um, uh, and then I went to drama school because my gran, um, who took over looking after us, me and my brothers and sisters, um, after my mum passed away. Um, and she was like, you have to go to university. And I was like, that's not part of the plan. I'm about to like, you know, get a role in EastEnders and oh, or something what? like that you know? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah she forced me to to go on to higher education I actually lied and told her that I was um at the University of Manchester <laughs> but I was at Rosebruford College doing directing because I just didn't know how to tell them um and I knew that they hated the fact that I spent so much time at the theatre and and like I said it was affecting my grades because like I knew that I was going to work in theatre or the mm. arts. You, mm. yeah. Why I started making stupid decisions, immature decisions, like not going to my law exam and stuff. But I think they knew the impact it was going to have academically on other stuff, which is why they were pushing yeah. so hard. Yeah. Um, but like my the accreditation from my directing course was from the University of Manchester, so I was right. like, that's credible. It's kind of like yeah. A it's a half lie, half lie. Yeah, I was wondering, like, on a practical level, how you were able to get away with that, but now it makes sense. But, I mean, like, they, <laughs> they knew that yeah. I was lying. Like, we never really spoke about it. They came to the graduation, which was at Rose Bruford in Sid Cup in a theatre, and, like, they were going wild, which really surprised me. But, like, that's, like, the only moment, I think, that I can remember 
mm. in the very early days where I realized that they had accepted that this was what I was doing, um, but that I was putting all of my mm. heart and soul into it. And I think they could see the yeah. effort. They could see the the work rate, and I think that they respected that, even if they couldn't qualify it or quantify it. They kind of respected that I was mm. at least applying myself to something because, you know, my my best friends when I was like eleven, they ended up going to prison when they were like thirteen. So like mm. so, so like they they my family really appreciated that I was at least being really driven and really ambitious about something. Mm. So. I think they kind of let me off the hook. And then as time went on and, and um, yeah, the, the work that I was doing started to get recognised, I think mm. them seeing other people acknowledge and, and really sadly, and I have to go deep with it, but like seeing me being acknowledged by white folks in the industry, mm. in some ways I think made them go, oh, okay. Mm, mm. That's interesting. You know, and and it's a really, really challenging thing, I think, when yeah, yeah, like for for artists in the black community, because mm. like the 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 kind of like level of I don't know, we only recognize accomplishment when it's like something that we can see, something that belongs to establishments that already exist, um, mm, mm. like television, like EastEnders or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just sort of. Um, yeah, continuing from that point, I think it's a it's a funny thing being um, like an artist who is black because it's kind of like yeah, like it's it's not so much that you know you you look to be sort of like recognised by the establishment and, and the white gaze. Um, it's it's more that like you want to be seen as more than just like. like I think it was Basket that said. Um, I'm not a black artist. I'm just an artist. I think it was something like that that he said. And I and like, I guess some people don't really vibe with that sentiment. But in a way, I can kind of understand it. It's like when when you're when you're not seen as like kind of an artist in your own right. Like if you have like the adjective tagged onto you, it's like you know you're only sort of um, accepted or recognised because you have that sort of adjective. It's kind of like the the kind of um what's oh, what's the word um my mind's gone blank but like for example like when we were at uni um i don't know quicker you must have had this as well but like people would kind of imply that the only reason that we got into that uni was because because of like the fact that we were black mm, you know what i mean quota or something yeah the, um affirmative action that's the word that, that mm. the term that i was looking for mm. um and i feel like yeah, like when when you do get that recognition outside of, I guess, the community, it's it's less about oh, you know, like now white people like recognize me or accept me, but more like you know, I'm seen as an artist. Um, mm. Like I transcend like these different communities and boundaries. I'm like, I'm not just sort of accepted by. Um, people in my community and it's it I don't know I, I still don't know where I stand on it it's a complicated topic but I I, I definitely understand the sentiment to uh, I think even even more than just like the idea of okay cool like only my community accepts me it's as an artist and obviously I'm not necessarily an artist myself but I can imagine the types of topics you want to cover aren't necessarily just things that people from your community can relate to 
mm. and having that kind of pigeonhole where you're considered a black artist automatically there's the, impl- the implication that okay you're only making art that black people can relate to or black people can consume and mm. that stops further opportunities mm. but then it's also dampening the the full scope of your artistry in mm, a sense mm, mm. um which i guess like the there's you know black is in some ways is a political identity right so i can understand why some people be like oh you're trying to hide from the fact that you're black and whatever the case is but i do i do understand that sentiment that you were talking about patrick that um basquiat whatever um was was alluding to mm-hmm. so interesting because like that's exactly the reason that I decided to become an artistic director. That's the mm. reason that I knew that I had to be in a position of leadership because, you know, I'd, um, I mean, firstly, I didn't like, and obviously I knew that I was black, but I didn't really know that I was black. And I think you're absolutely right, Kweku, in terms of what you said about black is a political identity. I think it is only a political identity, if I'm really honest, because mm. we're not black if Caucasian people aren't white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are parts of the respective communities, nationalities mm-hmm. that we're from. We are mm-hmm. black because white people exist and because of what has happened historically. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't know that I was black or what it meant until I went to drama school when it felt as if every interaction had to be, mm-hmm. you know, had something to do with the fact that I was black. I remember like people in my class saying stuff like, um, oh well you'll be good you'll get an agent because you're black and I'm like mm, mm. that's really interesting I thought maybe I'd get an agent because my work is good mm, mm, like, um, and and the reason that I decided to become an artistic director is because even after making shows that would like you know I'm not very good at tooting my own horn but like you know I made shows that that made real waves that that mm. you know nominated for Olivier Awards that yeah you know, like it, it was it was quite an overwhelming time. And then I meet with like, you know, most of the artistic directors from the massive producing theatres across the UK. And all they want me to do is tell stories about slaves or racism. Mm-hmm. And it was in that time that I realised that the work that I had been asked to do, it was only through doing Nine Night, which was a story essentially about grief, told mm-hmm. through the experience of a British Jamaican family. Mm-hmm that I realised, um, and it was an audience member that came and said, like, I didn't know there was a void in my life. And then I've seen this show and I realised mm. that void has been filled now. Mm. What they were talking about was the fact that they realised that they could just be humans and stories. Mm. And I, I then could not step into a meeting without realising that essentially for the entirety of my career, the, the like 10 years before that, I had been making work for white people. I thought that I was making work for black people. Um, But like by making those stories about racism, I was only being given those opportunities because the the artistic leaders understood that by putting those shows on, it helps to like teach, you know, liberal white people who decide to buy a ticket for the show, why racism is bad and Mm. Exists in our society, yeah. but then it was usually always through an American lens as well. So there was. Mm-hmm. This, I realized that I needed to find a way to close the gap. I needed to find a way to make it so that other artists like me basically didn't have the same experience of. Because actually, the show that I really wanted to do was a Greek classic, 
and it took over a year and a half before somebody said yes and then pandemic oh. came and it didn't happen but uh, yeah it, it's a really really messed up thing that you realize that people are are like a lot of the white cultural leaders think that they're doing a really good thing by asking you to come and do this show about slaves or whatever but actually mm. it, it's really difficult and it's traumatic for the people making it yeah um, yeah so. yeah yeah i remember um someone tweeted the other day um like they sort of parodied you know like when netflix is like oh black stories like here's like some black stories and literally it's all like slavery slavery civil rights but like really like visceral stuff mm. and yeah it's you're right like our experience obviously goes beyond that like um we're like you know we have our own sort of stories to tell that kind of highlight our humanity away from those kind of the, the, the kind of like you know struggles of being a black person um in sort of a white supremacist environment um but do you know what you're i'm so glad that you mentioned nine night because yeah that's literally like what i was gonna say next because nine night for me so i went with my my jamaican father to go and see nine night and honestly it's one of the best experiences i had at the theater in my life like I shed tears that night because it was literally like watching my family in front of me. Um, and it, a very similar thing kind of like it played out very, very similarly to like when my own grandmother passed away as well. So there was a lot of kind of, um, um, I guess repressed emotion that I kind of didn't even know that I had repressed that, that, that play allowed me to, to, yeah. Um, to kind of get off my chest and my dad as well. Like I don't, my, you know what Jamaican fathers are like, they don't really show their emotions like that, but I could see that my dad was, we were both extremely moved by it. Um, but that story was very much about experiences as um, a black Jamaican family. Um, but what I loved about it was that, you know, it wasn't like what we're talking about here. Like the fact that it's like, this is, um, a story about blackness. Um, it was a story that featured blackness because that's the only way that that story could be told. Mm. But like you said, Roy, it was very much about dealing with grief and the very kind of beautiful way that Jamaican people deal with grief as well, um, how we mourn. Um, but yeah, that, yeah. Um, when you sort of talk about, when you were mentioning earlier about um, um, how art or um plays um drama can kind of mirror what you're going through and help you kind of that was definitely one of those experiences for me um so yeah just as a fan thank you for for that because it was it was incredible um but yeah um i just kind of i guess i'm quick unless you you know you wanted to um ask anything before i sort of go on to to my next question no feel free feel yeah free. Um, I guess I just wanted to hear from both of you, but maybe I'll ask sort of Ice first. Um, what? So now that you're, sort of, um, I guess, like sort of in the middle of your careers, you know, um, and you kind of, you both have your kind of like origin stories. I don't mean to make you sound like Marvel superheroes, but like you have your kind of like your, um, how you started out. Um, where do you feel like you fit in um, in terms of, being black people in, um, you know, an arts environment that is still you know, sort of very white and middle class. Um, do you feel like you kind of have a, a remit to kind of, I don't know, push boundaries or whatever, or do you, do you feel like you just want to kind of 
be part of, a, a, I guess, a more kind of, um, what's the word? Um, a more sort of natural and organic process whereby more and more black people are involved in theatre. Like, do you, do you feel like you kind of have to like be sort of at the sort of um, the front line pushing things? Or do you feel like, you know, now that I'm here, I kind of just want to do what I'm best at and kind of just, um, I guess, advocate for more people to come through? Like, how, how do you kind of see your role? Um, I think working backstage, um, I'm, I want to be at the front of like, I don't feel like I fit in in theatre because there's such a lack of diversity, especially backstage. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're like, you know, the reason I reached out to you, we're trying to make theatre more diverse and we keep having these conversations. Mm. However, I can't... I can, there's, you know, having the conversations are great, but the pe- there's people above me and I can't make that change. I can only talk about it and hope mm. the people at the top listen. Um, Do you but, mind just um, just telling the listeners um, why it is that you, you, you reached out to me? Because, um, yeah, I thought that was quite important. The, at the National Theatre, we're doing a young technicians course um, and, like, you know... Uh, each member of the team kind of there's just a usually it's uh, in the theatre and they do the course but because of the pandemic it's being done online and this year they decided to have mentors um, from uh, different backgrounds and there's about 50 kids that they that we teach and we got um, um, a message saying that the applications aren't diverse and I thought I'd try and reach out to people with a reach of young black people to say, hey, can you, you know, anyone who's interested? Because I have a few um, friends who teach classes and stuff like that, just to try and like push out um, and reach out to young, not just like black kids, but people of color, because the, yeah, in general, in all theaters, the, there's not much diverseness. It's, um, and it's a conversation that keeps getting had. And at some, so uh, when theatres apply for funding, um, the one thing they do is go, oh, look how many, like, you know, people of colour we have, look how diverse our teams are. But um, what I've noticed is the way that they do it is like at some venues, or they'll hire people um, to be cleaners and that's how they tick the boxes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and other theatres as well. Like when I've filled in the form, I don't even tick my ethnicity. I just leave it out if yeah. I don't claim it. Whoever does payroll and whoever deals with HR won't ever know. Well, unless well, my name does give it away in a sense. But mm-hmm. um, uh, one, uh, two years ago, I had a email through from a theatre saying, hey, um, we're applying for funding. We need your help just to show we've got like a diverse team. And I was thinking, I haven't worked for you for like two years now. Um, like, yeah. like, I don't know, like I spoke to one of the head of stages who I used to work with there. Now he works at a different venue. Uh, I went up to his office and I was like, is this a joke? Like. <laughs> Um, and yeah, since then, that's when I realized I was like, I can't tick these boxes um, and we need to have more diverse teams, but I can only, like, 
at being at the bottom, um, the conversations need to be had at the top. And like yeah. even just going to HR about racism, it's mm. just like talking to a white person about racism and they're going, I understand. And you're like, how do you understand? Like, <laughs> yeah. How do you understand? What <laughs> like how tell me how you understand? And it's just yeah. like um I've got yeah. to apply that pressure. Yeah, and each theatre needs to have a person of colour in their HR team. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad and rare to see that. If you have yeah. an issue, you just go to the highest person of colour. Or, like, in some theatres, it's great that people who hire me, I can tell them, and they will go with the smoke to their mm. superiors or suck to the HR. But, yeah, it's being at the front of it and trying to get a diverse team and talking about diversity, but just not cutting it Mm. for me at the moment. Even just to have the conversation when they're like, you know, oh, you know, babe, and I'm like, I'm not babe. Like, I don't want to hear or pick (laughs) those boxes for babe. It's tiring for me, but yeah. What about you, Ro? Um, It's really interesting because I think, like I definitely have a lot of moments where I just want to make art. I just mm. want to artist. Like I don't want to have to justify everything because I think the thing that I I really struggled with is that I, like I always had to get permission from white people. Um, like as in like a, a white person would validate an idea and green light an idea. They'd say whether it was a good idea or not. And and like, I think that becomes really difficult when it's talking about something that is not understood by that person or it not being like, or not, yeah, just not being given the opportunities because they can't get their head around it. So therefore they can't qualify it and they don't know whether it will be good enough or whether it will sell. Um, and and so that's been quite hard, but, but at the same time, finding myself in a rut and deciding that the only way like I either have to do something about it or I've got to leave the industry and do something else. But so long as I'm in the industry working, I have to make the change that I want to see happen. So I, you know, I, I, I started off just saying what I thought, like if ever I was interviewed and sure enough, like I've never, ever, ever, <laughs> like I've very rarely had like interviews where critics don't start talking about being black or diversity. So I just started to use those platforms as a way to kind of like say things that I think um, other black people agreed with and things that we'd said like within our our own echo chambers, but never really spoke to the wider world. Um, And that I think is what led me into a position of leadership. But I think it is really hard because a lot of people don't realize that like, just by the virtue of being a black artist or black theatre worker, you have to make those decisions about like how politicised your existence is going to be as an artist. Um, I think that there are women maybe that can also relate to that. Like I, I've spoken to a lot of white women who who understand that that's a struggle for them, that like they feel as if their only currency is to talk about like being raped or sexual assault or childbirth or something. Um, and I think... Um, like it's it's allowed me to learn a lot about like how like where how all of these intersections kind of meet and and about like what collective action can do so i feel like over time 
it's now become like a collective effort to make change, which I think has been really important for our sector and it's moved things on. And I think knowing that it's not just me has meant that I have been able to, to like really focus on my work and focus on being an artist and not have to carry around this like baton all the time um, and, and not to be fighting all the time. Cause I think that really does take its toll on you. And actually I think about like a lot of black artists that I know. And I think, imagine if, imagine what they'd be or what they could do if they didn't have to like endure this other endless task of validating yourself and explaining yourself and you know, to, to one degree, I feel like it makes us really brilliant artists at the same time, but I think it's still a really, really unfair thing um, that we've got to experience that. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel a push to make change happen that I want to see, um, because otherwise there's no point in, in being here. Um, and just to touch up on what Roy just said, um, mm. like from the backstage, like, of the reason I remained freelance is because if you stay in one theater, the politics gets to you. Yeah. If, if you move around, if I, I tend to find if I move around, I'm only there for like a week, a month at the most, I move on. The politics doesn't trickle down fully to me. And yeah. I, you know, it's just short, like, you know, I'm here for a couple of days. It's, it's not that, um, it doesn't end up being on a deeper level for me. Yeah. Uh, and, like whereas if I get a full time job, you know that I I feel like when I've been at places for a long time, it has yeah. ended up being draining for me. Yeah. I was going to uh, ask as well because I'm um, before we actually started recording, we were talking about um, when you were working um, at um, when you did a job at the National Theatre for um, uh, Death of England. Um, you mentioned that the backstage staff um, were predominantly men because you said that they were all sort of, it was quite sort of, yeah, cool to see how they were sort of moved by the work. But is that generally the case, like when you work backstage, that it's just like male dominated? Um, and how, if that is the case, like um, how do we go about having sort of more female representation backstage and, and why do you, feel that is needed I mean I feel like that's quite an obvious thing to say but just so that people can find out our listeners can hear from you yourself um yeah definitely male dominated in most venues I'm the only female uh, or one of two uh in our department um sometimes you find them in lighting but not so much uh in the stage department uh when I work on TV, like you'll be like 25 carpenters and then you'll have like a 20 man crew doing all the heavy lifting and it's hard. Sometimes the crew look at you, especially the older crew who are like in their forties and you here I am like mid twenties and you're trying to tell them to do something and they look at you or they'll rush to like help you. And you're like, I don't, I'm okay. I don't really need your help. Um, I, I think, uh, Another reason I wanted to do the Young Technicians course is just to encourage more people, uh, young people, just to get involved. Um, I don't know how we can... Uh, I also feel like there's a lot of gatekeeping, not from 
um, some venues it's great and other venues it's very generational. You could have like, you know, three family members in one department, which means that the students graduating from drama school who have, you know, the qualifications, who, who just want to get their foot in, can't get their foot in. And um, you'll find like a 16 year old boy who's the, you know, leader of, uh, like the head of department's son will roll in with no qualifications and he'll get more hours over someone with, you know, a 40 year old man with two kids who's been doing this for half of his life. Um, so, yeah, this, that, the, these are the sort of politics from my perspective that I just find, like, if I just roll in, stay there short term and, like, leave. Because if you try and have these conversations, you also don't want to shoot, shoot yourself in the foot with work. Um, mm. And there's loads of really good theatres, um, like The Young Vic, uh, The Kiln, which are really young and diverse, and they get people from drama schools and um, people do placements. The only thing for me is the pay. Um, oh, well, the kiln is great with pay, but uh, like with the smaller theatres that don't pay that well, that have the, the diverse teams, for me, I mm. think um, being a black woman, uh, we are like, you know, when it comes to income, black women are right at the bottom of pay. It's like mm. you know, black men just above us and like, all the way at the top is a white man. And um, for me, like working at theatres where the pay is not that great, uh, I try and like, as much as, you know, you want to work in a diverse team, you've also, you also want to, you know, make money and be able to go places and see things that mm. normally have never been available to me. So mm. you either have to sacrifice your, you have to choose one or the other, which like, um, finding an issue but yeah it's we've had this conversation so many times on how you can tackle it but we uh I find that I can't tackle it it has to come from above but speaking to that person above is is not accessible mm. and easy without shoot, shooting yourself in the foot with all you know um some theaters are trying but I don't think they're trying enough I think you know they, yeah, it's it's really difficult sometimes mm. to. Yeah, because I was I was gonna ask like how how do we get more black people involved in theatre like where the money resides like how do we get them to be in have those opportunities because um yeah I was just thinking just now like is there a, a black theatre workers union for example like is there like a support network or is it still quite kind of fragmented. Yeah, it's still quite fragmented. Um, and I also think it's, you know, to do with growing up. So for me, if or people who don't live in London, um, they, the opportunities aren't there. Um, and, you know, you're mm. obviously, like, parents want you to be a doctor, a lawyer, X, Y, Z. So maybe... You, you might want to you if you live in London and the, you go to the you have the opportunity to go to the theatre. Your parents don't look as uh, like you know having a career in theatre is like something that's you know uh, well paid. Like I remember having this conversation with my dad and he was like, "Will there be jobs for you? Uh, mm. Is the pay okay?" And I was like, you know, um, 
if once you get to a certain part of your career like you're it's a like a well-paid career um mm. but I just tend to think there's that it I think with our generation like um and programs to be like oh come to the theater come and see a show or um uh, like productions that uh give free tickets out and things like that but I just tend to think yeah. it also you know with parents wanting you to go one way and not seeing the arts as a like a career and a career that will pay well and I think as well with like with uh, immigrant parents I think they just want the best for you they just want you you know to be comfortable and have a good life and I don't think they see you know acting or backstage work like a well-paid enough job that mm-hmm. they can relax well yeah. enough yeah um yeah I think I think one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot and and Bryony who I run the Royal Exchange with um is that like these institutions have not been built with us in mind mm-hmm. and so structurally you have to undo what is there mm. before you can move forward mm. you know one of the biggest eye-opening things for me when I started the job is like you know the budgeting and the finance and all that is not my forte at all like I feel like before I like <laughs> become known for just not being interested in that at all and actually doing this job has really changed my perspectives um mm. because budgets tell a massive story they tell the they they tell the true story of an organization they tell the true story of an institution because they yep. tell you what they invest in and they therefore tell you what that organization values mm-hmm. so if you're telling me that like diversity 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 but your audience development budget is 5 grand for the year but you mm-hmm. you probably spend like quadruple if not more than that on on wine free mm-hmm. <laughs> wine facts yeah, yeah and 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 you go like and and then you're like oh they just don't come you know i've i've actually sat in forums with other cultural leaders who've gone they won't come we don't we've tried everything and they won't come firstly who is they secondly is it a problem that they don't come because maybe they've got their own thing going on over there because you never let them in 20 years ago they've done their own thing mm. you know i think that there's like a lack of nuance and a lack of like detail when it comes to having these conversations mm-hmm. people like program shows and then go oh we need to get the south asian people in and you're like so you never spoke to these people before <laughs> and you think that you could just rock up on their doorstep and go hi hey we've got this thing firstly they're going to be like what do you want from us yeah yeah because why have you never spoken to us before Do you know what I mean? So there's like a real lack of transparency in terms of the actual conversation that that mm. like theaters are trying to have with their communities. Mm. The real honesty that needs to be had that like, you know, one of the things that we are trying to do as an organization is go like we have effed up in the past. Mm. I I can't take responsibility for what has happened before, but I will I will take what has to come right now in mm-hmm. order to end this relationship. So if yeah. you remember us fine. Mm-hmm. We can take that so that we can maybe move forward from there but like i think so so the challenges yeah yeah um i was just going to follow on from that and just kind of ask you know you sort of mentioned a kind of like a, a need for reconciliation um i mean one of the cool things about this country um 
It sounds weird to say that. Actually. Ugh, so, <laughs> ugh, yucky. No, but <laughs> one of the, <laughs> right now. <laughs> but one one of the things that I find quite interesting, um, and especially in London as well, but like um, normally within an urban area, you'll find that there is a theatre. Like there is a theatre somewhere, even if that theatre is no longer in use. Um, there is a theatre that at one point served the community. And I just wonder, you know, at one point or at some stage along the line where I, I guess theatre's always been the kind of a highbrow thing, or at least, actually, no, maybe not, because I guess before television and things like that, people went to the theatre more often to be entertained. But it's like somewhere along the line, um, there was a kind of dis- disassociation between the theatre and that industry and like, let's say like the local community. And I guess it's like a kind of a need now for theatres that are actually placed like literally physically, geographically within these communities to actually reach out to the local people. Because when we were having a discussion with um, um, an artist on, um, I think on the last episode actually, um, um, Oriana Jemiday, she was talking about how it, I was, I was asking, you know, like, how do we get access? Um, how do we grant access to more black people to, to, to go and see art, to go and access galleries without them feeling like sort of imposters? And one of the sort of the big sort of um, points that she made was that go and support local community initiatives. That's where, you know, that's where, you know, us as black people, we can really kind of um, be patrons to art um, and actually be welcomed and respected in those spaces. So I just wonder if there's like a kind of similar sort of, um, that's like maybe a similar, similar solution in this kind of, I guess, sort of reconciliation sort of thing that theatres probably need to do. Yeah, I think, I think it is like for, for us, especially, I mean, it's really interesting when you leave London and you look at like arts and culture outside, you understand that like, the subsidized theaters, you know, the theaters that are subsidized by government, like by by taxpayers' money, mm. these theaters are, they do do a bigger job of just being a theater. That you know, they are like, they offer well-being. They are like, you know, they help yeah. people to get back into employment. They mm. help people to feel a part of their community. You know, like we have a young company. We have an elders company we have um a, a local exchange ambassadors to so like community ambassadors and we're doing projects all over greater manchester um and i think that's because like it, it's so abundantly clear outside of london that the theater is supposed to be serving the community mm. i think in london um and and it's interesting because like watching stuff like Bridgerton has allowed me to see like a really strong connection between like how society was run in the past and like the way in which fit, like the hangover that still exists, I think in theater, this elitism, the theaters Mm -hmm. are so that like you can be seen if you are a person of status in society, you know, Mm -hmm. those spaces aren't necessarily built to facilitate the art they're built to facilitate the conversation around society, which mm. I think is really, really interesting. Um, we're really lucky because our fit is in the round, so it's really democratic actually, and every seat is a good seat. And mm. and, and that's one of the reasons that I really loved the theater. But I think um, 
yeah, there's there's like this big hangover, I think, um, uh, from society. And, and if you think about like Shakespeare's days when people used to go and watch theatre, it was a conversation. And I don't know where, at what point, suddenly we've decided that that like we've all got to be silent and you can't rustle your crisps and all of that stuff. Um, uh, but like, yeah, I think um, going forward, there is a real responsibility that theatres have to to make sure that they're understanding the values of the people that are in their midst, mm. like bigger than just like, um, what show do you want to watch? Or there's black people here. So we'll put another, we'll, you know, we'll make sure that there's a story about black people. It's like, what is your value system? What are the value systems of these different communities? How do we teach one another about one another's values? Like we really do see ourselves as an opportunity an arena for people to, to see what life is like for somebody else like to be able to teach people how to be cooperative to teach people how like what a cohesive society could be and what it could look like and that's not to say that every story that is put on is like about how a black person and a white person fall in love or whatever mm. it's not mm-hmm. that at all it's just mm. like opportunities for you to see you know we always talk about um like when we program work, it's like giving somebody a magnifying glass and Mm. from where they're standing, they look really closely to examine something. Mm. And then they invite everyone else to move from where they're sitting and come and look from their perspective at what Mm. they see, you know, in as much detail as possible. And then when you're done, you pass it on to somebody else so that, Mm. you know, and I think that's like to move away from the, the kind of like very, traditional ideas of what is acceptable to see and what isn't and and what's mm-hmm. entertaining and what isn't entertaining it's about giving mm. everyone an opportunity to mm. show the world like what your experience is mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. hope that we can learn something from each other because yeah we're you know we're all charities we're not all but most like of the theaters in the country are charities and so therefore, like, we're not here for financial gain, but mm-hmm. like the system that we exist within and the, like the economic structures that we live within in terms of arts and culture in this country um, and the way that it's funded and the lack of funding as well means that like theatres have had to become, um, you know, I think there was a stat that was like flying around when theatre was desperately trying to like plead for for government support that like for every pound that a subsidized theater is given they make somewhere between three to four pounds on top of that so like mm-hmm. these theaters which are actually meant to exist for social capital mm-hmm. they're about well-being they're about like allowing people to feel a part of society because we you know we are we can like slot into those gaps in democracy like and bureaucracy that people can't always navigate very easily mm-hmm. but like the sister economic structures that we exist within mean that our work that isn't always able to do that because everyone is so focused on making money and therefore mm-hmm. people start making really rash decisions about like what stories will make money and what mm-hmm. the stories that people understand will make money are stories that are written by predominantly white men who are dead and european or american and and I, I'm always like, I don't understand why that is our approach. When mm. most of the time, when people go to the cinema, they've never seen that story before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we're always so reluctant in... Finding in, new stories. 
in theatre to like embrace new stories, mm. embracing those new stories that connect to the value systems that our communities hold. Mm. Uh, that is is also a really big kind of like um, point of obstacle, I think, in in our sector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that. Um... Really quickly, just to add what what Roy is saying. Mm-hmm. Talking the other day. Uh, with a few people and we're talking about you know how accessible is theatre or you know if you do if you finally afford like if you can afford to go to the theatre little things like um no uh no latecomers no re-entry really put off people like um wanting or that's uh like you know for some people you can buy a ticket if no re-entry you could turn up tomorrow and buy another ticket that's not a big deal but someone's paying 40 pounds and you're telling me if you want to go to the toilet halfway through it you can't come back in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's little things that theaters could easily change to mm. make theater, like to make the theater experience more accessible for other mm-hmm. people you know because you know, health or whatever reasons you have to step out for a minute or there's no, like, no latecomers. Some tickets are so highly priced and you're saying I can't come in if I'm late from work or the tube's Mm -hmm. been made. Like, yeah, I I tend to think that there's things about theatre that little things, you're just like, that's such an easy thing to change. But that's about who is valued in those spaces. Mm. If you... Like, you know, I, I remember there was, it, there was a really brilliant moment where a member of our team at the Royal Exchange witnessed, um, you know, a, a group of elderly white women basically saying, there's some kids running around here, you need to make them stop. And, and her going like, this space belongs to everyone. You know, like they are young people. And if we want young people to be in our space, we've got to accommodate the fact that they have certain levels of energy and we'll do certain things because they are not, you know, of age or whatever. And it's really interesting that she said that because it really illuminated a lot of things for me. Um, A lot of things that I'd experienced in the past even and in the present. And, And I think like a lot of those rules that exist, they are to please the people that will pay the high price tickets. Mm. essentially the, the the kind of like white middle class and wealthier audiences who come who the, the people who are entitled enough to complain for mm. instance about the fact that like you know in the casting of a show there's a white man who has a black son you know people actually write in and go do not i, I am offended by what you've put on stage <laughs> you know, people you know the, the, it's those people that that theaters you know bend not bend their rules but like again because these institutions are created to facilitate the pleasure of those people Mm. inviting other groups of people in who have different belief systems you know i remember on nine on nine night there were brilliant moments where the audience like behaved in ways that that like you know traditional theater audiences don't and some people absolutely hated it and (laughs) i remember on, on like one of the first previews, there was this moment where um, there was a family like sitting and eating and this white guy was like, be quiet. And if you saw the way that mummy turned around and look at the man, mm. it's like, yo, this is- gonna be- you know, Do you know what I loved about my, my experience when I went to Nine Night as well? It really did feel like for once, black people weren't guests in that space. 
that space mm. had become our space. So you're right. The similar things like that happened when I was there. I remember like it was, it just felt like a lot more um, la- laid back and a lot more kind of familial. Mm. Also, I noticed that, you know, the kind of, I guess the, um, the veterans of that theatre, whatever, they were the ones to made to feel like I'm a guest in this space. And yeah. do you know what? Like, not that I kind of want some sort of like restorative justice or whatever, but I do feel like for that night, when Nine Night was on, on at that theatre, it should feel, you know, especially because of how Nine Night is, I feel like we as the audience, we're in that living room, you know, we're in grandma's mm-hmm. living room. Like it should really feel like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, I t- yeah, I totally, I totally get that. I just wanted to ask quickly, unless Quaker, did you, um, did you want to jump in? Um, not necessarily the question, but just following from what you're saying and um, yeah. kind of like harking back to a point that Roy made about how we actually engage and interact with um, theatre productions. And um, when you're talking about like, you know, I think there's there's a certain disposition of like a, a older white middle class person watching the thing where it's very much like I keep quiet, I watch that kind of thing. Whereas I think um, from people from different cultures and communities, where excuse me, um, like for instance, you have you have reactions. You're you're watching something that's emotional. Mm. You're gonna have emotions that you wanna project and express. Mm. there's is is you can't really limit that experience that's kind of taken away from how you are interacting with that whole experience and i remember there's there's certain films for instance that came out where um so like even blue story for instance i went with one of my friends to watch it and i remember there's moments where you know half the crowd will start laughing or like for instance even when get out came out um and and like if you're there with a black audience or predominantly black audience like people are laughing people are like joking there's like people speaking to the characters that in the movie and like little conversations going on and that like really made the experience for me um and still there's going to be people within that crowd that um you know they they have the entitlement to believe like no everyone should be quiet everyone should kind of be on the same vibe that i'm on um so yeah that was more just like a just just to mm. um yeah, to i remember when again when I went to see Get Out, actually, you know, like right at the end where, um, you know, at the end of action movies where the the cavalry arrives, the police arrive, right? Yeah. And I just remember the difference in response. Um, <laughs> I know where you're going with. <laughs> because obviously, like, at the end of an action movie, when the police arrive in, like, kind of, like, normal Hollywood films, that's the cavalry. Everyone's like, ah, oh, the police are here. Mm-hmm. Like, the hero is saved or whatever. But... Like, yeah, when I went to see it, obviously there was a lot of black people in the audience and the way that we were just like, oh, Pete, like we <laughs> always like, oh no, like, and it was so funny to like that. And obviously Jordan Peele's, you know, he's great, man. So I know that like, obviously that was the reason he did that because mm. like the difference in the response just tells you like so much, you know? Um, and yeah, I feel like that's what, the the arts visual arts um drama should should be about like um it is definitely this kind of um exchange of different experiences mm-hmm. and you know before when um Roy when you were talking about how um you know th- theater should be like this space where we kind of like like 
negotiate our differences or experience like different um, lived experiences and things like that. Um, and it, for me, it just speaks to kind of like, I guess the sort of the modern tradition of theatre, at least where um, theatre derives from um, in Europe, I from um, like Greek civilization, and how that was like such an important part of another important aspect of Greek mm. civilization, which was democracy. So yeah, I feel like not to overplay the kind of the Western civilization thing, but I do think there is something to be said of like how theatre can act as an important function of a democratic society, or at least a society that is um, um, that values lived experiences and yeah, um, has a degree of of, of unity and, and mutual understanding. Um, but yeah, um, I'm just aware of the time. Like this has been such a great conversation, um, and it has been really good to just kind of talk more about about the arts recently um so guys i just want to say a massive thank you for coming on um quaker i i you know like i know i've talked a lot on this episode so you know if you have anything like you wanted to drop like us in their top five maybe or like their best production i don't know because <laughs> um, i know um, I've, I've chatted a lot on this this one no no it's good like, i think every time we um whenever we introduce a guest depending on who was reached out to first or who kind of found the the guest like that is that's kind of like our time to like really get get things off our uh or kind of indulge our own interests and questions and stuff so like yeah it was interesting for me to to kind of take that in but um i wanted to touch on very like briefly i guess obviously we're in a pandemic um there's been a you know quite a lot of coverage around how that's affecting the arts and um a lot of response from the arts community about that and some have tried to adapt to this new reality by moving some of their shows to an online format um and I was wondering what that if if that's something you've done or you know you've you've noticed from um other some of your peers and colleagues um how that experience has been and whether this this like pandemic has shaped how um you guys will operate even in the future like when things kind of go back to normality in a sense do you want to go ice no you, no go ahead <laughs> um it's really interesting because i feel like i like through working in theater there has always been like a resistance to digital and a resistance to like, um, yeah, to, to like technology in theatre, because I guess the USP of, of what we do is about the fact that we all share space. And funnily enough, I think the pandemic has shown us all like just how important that experience of being together and sharing space is, because that's all, all that we want to do right now is to be with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's really important in terms of us understanding what our currency is in the world as an art form. Um, I think I like I've always been really excited by digital stuff. I've been told many times by like friends of mine who are filmmakers that a lot of the work that I make is very filmic. And I think that's because I never went to the theater as a child. Um, and actually, I don't know that I'm very inspired by <laughs> such a terrible thing to say. I don't know that I'm very inspired by a lot of the theatre that I watch because 
I am that kind of guy that's like, like you know, Shit's Creek. Everyone's talking about that show. Mm. And I've been trying to watch it. I'm like, I can't see a black person. I cannot indulge this show. Mm. I, like, I just I, I just switch off because I, I'm finding it really hard to engage. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, there's a similar thing in theatre. But, but the thing that I think has been really interesting about this time is that the whole debacle around the way in which arts and culture has been treated and those silly advertisements telling Fatima to become a, you know, a data analyst and all of that, mm. they in some ways have actually exposed the fact that as a sector, we do not do a good enough job to reach the world, actually, that we are maybe too introspective. And mm. so it's, I think it's going to really force people to like, really be a lot more outward looking than than we ever have been and and i've had people like contact me about digital stuff that we've put on who don't go to the theater and actually what it's allowed them to do is like have an insight into what that experience might be and they've gone oh actually i think i might come next time actually like let me know when something's happening and i'll try and come in um and so i think it's going to do a really really interesting thing and i feel like the future is like a hybrid between the two mm. you know? We, we all would have really learned our lessons this time about what it means to not engage with digital because everyone's scrambling around trying to uh, <laughs> yeah. create yeah. content and everyone's complaining about how terrible the content is and all of that. So I think that, that like there's a real lesson being learned about like the, like, yeah, about the benefits of digital and the fact that as an art form, if we do not keep up with the world, then then that is when we lose our currency. When we're not relevant and we're not speaking to the world today and speaking through the mediums that people use today, mm. then we lose our currency. And 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 that's that's when we'll stay elitist and stay um, inaccessible. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, that that's yeah. That's yeah, interesting perspective. Cool guys. Um yeah um like i said again thank you guys so much for coming on um it's been a great conversation and i wish i could just talk more you know i uh, will not talk more but like you know hear more from you guys um but yeah um is so just before we wrap up normally what we do we get um our guests to just like plug anything um that they're working on or um just like drop their socials so that people can find more of their work or reach out to them um, so yeah, here's your kind of your moment to do that now. Um, plug whatever it is you're working on, if you want to pick anyone up or anything like that. <laughs> I don't think anyone's working on anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Ice, do you want to? Uh, I'd be keen to hear from other like people of colour, not just in London, because you know I'm in a bubble, like where I work sometimes. Um, be keen to hear from other people about their experiences and I hope that uh, from this theatre is also like are held accountable for their lack of diversity um, mm. and you know you can hold theatres like you know with the Black Lives Matter movement a lot of theatres posted and tweeted but mm. when we went outside opens again hopefully you can be like well you said this last summer so yeah yeah see where is well, everything you said, I want to see what you said. So yeah. 
I haven't really got any social media to plug, but maybe like shoot me a message on Instagram or tweet at you guys and I'll have a look what anyone's saying. But yeah. Cool, cool. And um, Roy, um, like, do you want to plug your socials or anything like that? Or uh, I'm really bad at social media. That's that's fine. Serial retweeter. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Every now and then, I feel like I do say stuff. Um, uh, yeah, my Twitter is R A W E I S E artist. Um, yeah, just the Twitter. The Instagram is not very interesting. <laughs> that's cool. Smoothies and do you know what? I I deleted my Instagram last year and then I tried to reboot it this year and I'm just like, I don't know. It just feels like such an alien concept to me now. Like, mm. like the kind of the 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 need to like kind of like um journal every sing, single thing that you're doing, not for yourself but for other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, my Instagram's dead as well. I have like five photos and yeah, that's about it. But I use it to like kind of. I guess just for like sort of creative inspiration, I follow a lot of great people on, mm. on, on those platforms and stuff like that. And Twitter also for like conversations, but um, yeah. Um, but I guess with um, Over the Bridge podcast, um, you know, we're still very much um, on Twitter and, and Instagram. Um, so you can find us at, at OTB Podcast UK. Um, and um, yeah, if you want to drop us an email, um, if you want to appear on the podcast or you just want to send us a lovely message because we really enjoy hearing messages from our, our listeners as well, um, it is otbpodcastuk at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, guys, thank you so much once again for coming on. Um, and I really hope that, yeah, as you said, that this conversation, um, you know, people pick up on this and, and um, yeah, the theatre industry does continue to go from strength to strength um especially once we get out of um this this pandemic situation but um yeah it's been a real pleasure guys so thank you so much for coming on Roy and ice um and yeah kwaku um do you want to sign up because i'm just aware of how much talking I've, I've done today so you you you're you're very like um wise so maybe you can say something nice to our listeners to sign I, up. I think you really did sign up but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for listening guys um stay safe stay well and yeah we'll check in again soon yeah.